Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional song making at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit CincinnatiSongInitiative.org slash audit. This is Song Cycle, where we gab with cool people who bring their innovative ideas and projects to life to contribute to a more vibrant society through song. I'm your host, Sam Martin, founding artistic director of Cincinnati Song Initiative. Let's get into it. Whether it's performers with amazing stories from the stage, entrepreneurs and administrators who work tirelessly to push our industry forward in exciting ways, composers with an eye toward the future of song, or anybody else in this big community, I want to hear from them and share their stories with you. Welcome back to the Song Cycle Podcast. Today, I am unbelievably excited to be chatting with legendary human, mezzo, teacher, administrator, Sasha Cook. You can read all about her on her website online, but uh, here is a little snippet to get us started. Two-time Grammy Award-winning mezzo-soprano Sasha Cook has been called a, quote, luminous standout by the New York Times and, quote, equal parts poise, radiance, and elegant directness by Opera News. Ms. Cook has sung at the Metropolitan Opera, San Francisco Opera, English National Opera, Seattle Opera, Opera Nacional de Bordeaux, and Grand Théâtre de Lisieux, among others and with over 80 symphony orchestras worldwide, frequently in the works of Mahler. Last season marked Ms. Cook's appointment at the Music Academy as co-director of the Lair Vocal Institute. Her album, How Do I Find You, was nominated for a 2022 Grammy Award for Best Vocal Solo Album, and we'll be talking about many of these activities and cool projects that Sasha has under her belt and is currently engaging in. So welcome to the podcast, Sasha Cook. So great to be here. Um, so let's, to, to start, let's, let's dial it all back and let's get to know you a little bit. And so to tell us a little bit how you got into music, like in your childhood, what made you want to become a singer? What sort of um, environment did you grow up in musically? Well, I grew up in a very musical one, not because my parents were musical themselves, but they've just always been avid lovers of opera, art, museums, symphonic music. So I think some of my earliest memories are probably falling asleep to classical music blaring in the house. <laughs> and my, my, especially my dad's main obsession. He could tell you what he heard in 1975 and who conducted and who sang. Like he's one of those um, classical nerds wow. um, and he's writing a book on opera right now. So 
those that's that's the main reason. And then I think when I was four or five, I requested a piano and they both teach Russian at Texas A&M. And one of their students was selling a piano for three hundred dollars. And I'll never forget because it came in this like pickup truck. I remember seeing the upright and getting it into the house. And it's like, of course, you know how it is with your first piano. Like there's this love. There's this like very special relationship. And so piano was my first love. And I think looking back, it was also this safe space because I think, you know, like a lot of kids, I endured some, you know, rough times at school, people picking on me. Um, I've always been chubby. So I was made fun of for that. And music was something no one could touch. Music was a space that was just my own. And I didn't know that at the time, but looking back, like when I think about that relationship, it's always been special. Did I think I would be a musician? No way, no way. And then kind of got into viola in, I don't know, middle school. And I was first chair somehow. I don't know how that happened. Of course, this is like the school orchestra and then choir, you know, and choir was just like a dream because I was super shy. So it was the right way to enter into that arena. Mm -hmm. Like the, as an example of my shyness, C above middle C, I would never sing because I could start to hear my voice pop out of the choral texture. I was like, Ooh, I I don't want to be heard. Yeah. You know? So then at Rice University, my voice teacher said, because I, I think I said to her, I just want to sound like all the other girls. I, I want to do queen of the night. I want to be a soprano. And she said, it's good to be different. Mm. And I remember I had a little light bulb moment where I thought it is. Oh, it is. And that was such a lucky, you know, interaction too. And she's still a dear friend, Kathy Cowan. Um, So that was kind of the beginning of my journey. I really never saw it coming. I kept doubting it and that was a pattern that continued really until even this position at Music Academy. I never see things coming and then they come. Like, never thought I would get into Rice. Never thought I would get into Juilliard. The Met program, management, all of it kind of just, it felt like the red carpet rolled out when mm-hmm. it was when it came to classical music. And I was like, well, here I come because I love this stuff. That's really an astounding story. And um, if you didn't know it was coming... And you didn't have this huge ambition already. Like, how did you, for example, how did you decide to go to college for singing? Because often people like that's, at least in the context of being at that age, that's like an active decision to go major in music. And many people have parents or, 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 or family members that um, try and dissuade them, right? All these warnings about that kind of thing. So if this wasn't necessarily, if you didn't have that at that point of thinking, I want to, you know, go perform on the opera stages of the world, how did you decide to even go major in voice in college just because you loved it so much? Well, in the case of Rice, it was a colleague, you know, in theater. We had just done a musical together. I think I had ended up being the vocal coach for most of the singers. And she said, you should look at Rice. And I was like, oh, I won't, I won't get into Rice. She's like, (laughs) you know, take it, take a chance. And it turned out she ended up going to Rice also. Uh I think maybe four of us from my high school ended up going there. Mm -hmm. And I, I just did it on a whim. I thought, well, why not? You know, it's nice to stay in Texas. I'm the older of three kids. So I kind of wanted to stay close to home if I could close to my siblings. So I just never in a thousand, I just never imagined it happening. But the other thing is I, I, I trust the universe. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I really like, I find this with travel and it's one of the gifts of being a musician or traveling anything is you, you can pick up on these cues from the universe because most people have patterns, right? Thank goodness for them. I mean, I think a lot of sanity is built in pattern and, you know, knowing the way to work and knowing the way at the market and knowing where you pick up your food and your dry cleaning. And whereas us, we're constantly, where's North, South, East to West? Where am I finding food? Where is the hall? How early do I need to get to rehearsal? You know, we're constantly figuring out these very basic logistics and it makes your brain turn on. And in that same way, because you have new synapses, new stimuli all the time, you see things anew. And I feel like you're listening maybe a little bit more intensely. And when the universe sends you a signal and says, Sam, you need to do this. You need to take that class. You need to go through that door. Did you see that door that just opened? Walk through. And I, I found this. I, I Like I was in France once, lost, couldn't find my Airbnb. And I just, I felt like all, all the fear, you know, start. I think I had a baby attached to the front of me. I'm trying to like pulling this big luggage and you just, you, you find the person, you find the way you listen, you really tap into your toolkit. You know, what do you need? You know, I think my phone didn't work because this was, I don't think this was pre-cell phone, but I didn't have my service set up. And I like those sort of challenges. I like that we're put in really uncomfortable circumstances. Huh. Interesting. Wow. Um, I also love what you said about the fact that you didn't expect each step of your journey in your career and your life to unfold as it did. And um, I love that because that's the perfect setup for what I, what I believe is an amazing way to, you know, to constantly live with and accept surprises in life. Right. And flows perfectly into what you just said about trusting the universe and the cues of the universe. Right. Um, I just love that. I love that. That was, that has been your experience at every step of the way and that it wasn't this carefully curated meticulous. I mean, that's fine. And that happens and many people build their lives in that way, but it's also just so wonderful to hear that all this stuff, basically each and every, I mean, maybe you're underselling yourself. I'm sure you are. You were just absolutely incredible, but, but at the same time, as it was happening to you, the fact that each and every moment of these big life-changing things was a surprise is just so delightful. And that you, you know, ran, ran towards them with open arms and, and acceptance. I mean, I, I have these, uh, in master classes, I tend to share these, uh, horribly coined Sasha spiels, which are sort of my <laughs> theories on maybe not theories on success, but certain things that I deduce have helped my path. And one of them is this idea of openness. It's just like you described, you know, because when I was in my undergrad, for instance, I did like improv comedy and gospel choir. There were a couple things I did that looking back really helped. And when a composer said, hey, Sasha, will you learn this piece to premiere a couple weeks? I didn't say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm a Caribbean and then I will be uh, Elia. And, uh, you know, I didn't I didn't have my plan figured out. So I was open to something strange and loved it. And so I like to tell young singers and pianists this, that list, like listen to those invitations and don't always have it all figured out because there's the impression we have of ourselves, but then there's the impression, sadly, for better or worse, that the industry has of sure. ourselves. 
Sure. And so people will say, Sam, I'd love for you to do this ligety. And you're like, oh no, I don't do anything past 19. You know, whatever. And I, I always question why do we why do we do that? You know, why do we have it all figured out? Um, but the another one of my spiels is the gut instinct and listening to your intuition. Mm. And that's a, it comes back actually back to a music academy story. I was there in 2002 and Marilyn Horn invited manager Matthew Epstein to come talk to us. And one of the things she said was, Matthew, what do you define as the character, uh, the defining characteristic of a career? And he said, gut instinct. And I remember I was like, what does that mean? Uh, mm-hmm. Huh? Wait, what is that? And I was 19. I was clueless. I was absorbing so much fabulous information there. But I've come back to that comment over the years, over and over, mm-hmm. because indeed we have so many things coming at us, opinions, instructions, but if we don't listen to our own intuition and what it wants, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll be in trouble because if we start down that path, doing what we're told and not what we're led to do by our internal self, you know, that's, that's going to catch up with you. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's great. Um, so, okay. You are a super unique person and artist in that you truly, it seems to me, have three feet planted in opera, symphonic concert work, and recital work, which is like amazing and awesome. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, uh, not compare and contrast, but can you tell us about how you approach those different kinds of projects if you approach them differently or why it's important that you do all three, if, if that is your, if that is something that you've sought to do um, and, and how, how do you go about being in those three different worlds? Well, they really all help one another so much, which I love. And I love that I get to kind of be a like perfect example of that because I bounce back and forth mm-hmm. between them. Um, like the intensity and narrative that we have in opera serves symphonic repertoire so much so Mm. that it's never park and bark or sing the pitches and rhythms, Mm. but really what is this character, even if it's Baudelaire, what is this person doing? What's happening? What gives it meaning as opposed to stand and sing, you know, and recital, you know, I think recital is the greatest vehicle for one's own artistic self, artistic identity, what you want to say, what you want to offer to the world. It's like the core of why you're here. Why, why music? Why now? What do you want to say? We don't always get to do that in symphony and opera because we're more often a cog in a wheel. We're, we're saying yes to whatever we're asked. Whereas in recital, we get to ask, we get to choose the, the, the journey and that confidence and responsibility and identity serve all the other genres so much because then you've also kind of come to know yourself and by knowing yourself you have more to say and you have more to share and that will serve no matter what you do you know but the other part of your question in terms of choosing this I mean I really sounds it sounds maybe pathetic but I feel like that red carpet analogy you know that's that's my story um the composer piece is another big part of my story. So that composer at Rice, I can still see him, Stephen Jamail, like that first collaboration led to the next composer and the next composer and the next composer led to John Adams and my coming into the Met Young Arts program one day and the mentor, Ken Noda saying, 
John Adams wants you to be the lead in his opera. And I was like, excuse me, how does he know my name? You know, and the way I make sense of that is all of those people that came before are the seeds I planted in college. And that's something I say to young people now, not that I'm old, I'm not old, but <laughs> I, I say, you know, just invest in what speaks to your soul now, because whether you know it or not, you're actually planting seeds mm -hmm. and it can be, it can be politics. I mean, it can be anything. Sure. Just listen to that intuition, follow it. It'll always be right. It'll never be wrong. Um, so then there I was 26 um, in a lead role at the Met, it was Kitty Oppenheimer and Dr. Atomic. So I was one of, I don't know, 20 or so women who got to audition privately for him, all based in recommendations, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that's, and I found out later he had heard me compared to Lorraine Hunt Lieberson. So he's like, you're like Lorraine, you do this, you do this, you do this. I want to hear you. That was, so he basically requested me yeah. without hearing me live. So then yeah. I'm in DC doing a recital with my dear friend Peyo Wong and the Met says can you go audition for John Adams you know before your recital go sing and I said well all I have with me is Debussy and Rachmaninoff and I'm not prepared to sing John Adams right now they're like that's fine so I, sang, <laughs> I sang a bunch of song for John and he was like great you know and that was the story there and so that began the path of contemporary which you know, it's been an interesting, wonderful path. Now the world seems to be paying a lot more attention to contemporary music, which is really a wonderful joy. But I remember 20 years ago when I was one of the weird ones and everyone's like, why are you doing that? You know, huh. and I was like, well, I'm taking the jobs that come to me. And interestingly, symphonic work has certain ties to contemporary work in terms of just being a really good musician not that you don't have to be a good musician in other traditional opera, but maybe it's a little bit more paramount that mm -hmm. your rhythm is really solid, that your pitch is really solid. You know, I always tell young singers, you know, time is money. You have to show up hundred percent prepared because there are so many things we can't control, but that's one of the things you can't control. So wouldn't you want to do all of those and not waste anyone's time, not have to apologize. You might get sick. Let's leave room for that. You might lose a family member. Let's leave room for that. You may have jet lag. Leave room for that. But prep, you will never regret. You will never regret putting it into the computer way in advance. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good way to put it. You'll never regret prep or being prepared. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I always like when I have a, a symphonic job, because I say this, I'm like, if you miss one note, it's over. Like mm. if you miss one entrance, you know, there's there, there are famous stories about funny happenings like Beethoven nine, the, the baritone solo is coming in, you know, a whole several pages too early because there's repeated material. So it's like, there are these silly stories, right? We have to know, we have to have answered all of those questions. We have had to have looked at the entire piece. We've had to research the text and have our own personal story, not just enough that's translation. But when I'm in the um, dress rehearsal before a symphonic show, I'm already playing the room. You know, I'm pretending the audience is there. Yeah. I'm thinking about my own, whatever it is, dramatic story. I'm not counting. Right. I'm not thinking of pitches. Right. Or what's that word mean again? Right. Like that should have been several weeks ago at home. Right. And then 
I can hang out with my colleagues or I can enjoy the city I'm in or I can try to find the cool coffee place instead of going back to my hotel room and counting. Like, 100%. 100%. I mean, that right there is like, that's the only question you ask. Why would, it, why would you want to put yourself in any situation other than setting yourself up to be able to go hang out with your new colleagues or your old colleagues and friends and go find the coffee shops? And Yeah. I mean, all, all instrumentalists use their body, mm-hmm. but we, I've said a term, which maybe is not so attractive, but I say we're the only flesh instrument. We can't practice 20 hours a day, right? We have to time it. So for singers, it's more important than anything else, how we prep. I always say it's like Thanksgiving dinner. You've got one oven and 13 dishes have to go in. Well, which ones need a week? Which ones need a year? Which ones need six months? And everyone's different. You don't have to be as fast as the next person. You don't have to learn it overnight. If you need several months, there's no apologies needed. All it, all that matters is that you know your own pace mm-hmm. and that you're in charge. You're the CEO of your company. Yes. So, you know, I have two operas coming up in a couple months. And I knew because they're both difficult and they're both new to me and they're back to back. I had to put one way in advance of the other. So I learned one already in the fall and the next one I'm going to focus on in the spring. And they both kind of come together in the spring. But if I had put them, if I had crammed them in to the months before, first of all, I wouldn't have sung them well, mm-hmm. you know, it would have been stressful. So it would have affected my mental health and my personal life. Not mm-hmm. good, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I don't know if we'll talk about the parenting piece, but it's even more important if you're a parent because you want to have time to just be you, you know? Yeah. Well, let's, I mean, say, say more about that. And, uh, and, and also that could lead us into, you know, I want to hear a little bit about, you know, your experience creating your own series, starting with the, you know, during the pandemic with the Sasha sessions, um, where you've talked with so many people. And from my view, it seems like there's been a lot of fantastic conversations that come out that has come, come that have come out of that series revolving around the personal side of things and all the unspoken things in the pandemic, that was like pretty much one of the top three amazing things that happened during the pandemic, the vulnerability and the openness of conversations that started to occur amongst people. So many curtains were dragged down and so many barriers were broken of all these unspoken things. Why are they unspoken topics? Don't really know. But so you have, you've carved out your own lane with this Instagram series. Fabulous. Um, And a lot of your guests, you guys got into the nitty gritty about things like parenting, right? Mm-hmm. talk about that. I don't, I obviously, I don't have that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so please just t- share with me um, a little bit about what you've learned and the conversations yes. you've had. I really appreciate what you said. Um, I think it was a sort of spontaneous creation. Mm-hmm. I was in a little bit of a dark place. And one of the questions that emerged is, you know, am I alone? And of course I'm not. And that's, I think the big takeaway for me from all those sessions is we should share more of our own experiences, not only for our betterment, but everyone else's. And that's why, that's one thing I like about social media. There are plenty of things I don't like, especially as a parent, speaking of that, because I really want my girls to feel free and not have this comparison culture that comes with social media. But there are good things, right? There are times when we can help one another. And um, I think I, well, also food is a bit of a stress for me because I have struggled with body image and um, weight loss and the criticism of our industry and all of that, being a woman in our industry. 
And when I suddenly lost all my jobs, I lost kind of all accountability because usually I always have a job coming up to think about, right? Another gown to wear, another costume, another character to inhabit. And now suddenly unemployment, you know, a bottle of wine, uh, losing job after job after job. And I think I was starting to go through that panic of, oh gosh, I can't fall into this hole, you know? And that was one of the ways I climbed out of it is talking to other artists that were in the same boat. I mean, we were all really struggling. And I think we don't want to show those darker sides, but we need to. We need to be truthful about them. And I really, I'm, I, I, I don't like the term privilege, but I'm a privileged performer. I know it. I live a very lucky existence. I know the statistics around how many of us that graduate with a music degree actually have a career. I know how rare it is the stars do have to align. It's like Jake Heggie says, you know, there's talent, this and this and this, and then magic dust. Like the last ingredient is this, like, you got to be in the right place at the right time or the right person has to hear you and give you the job. And yeah. it's unfair. Yeah. It's cer- certainly not really controllable by us. Yeah. yeah. You know? I mean, there's certain things in our control, but like you said, the magic dust factor. Yeah. Know. Yeah. So uh, is the Sasha Sesh series still going? Well, yeah, I hope so. I mean, I I have on my list now for maybe six months to write Renee Fleming because I want to pick her brain both as a parent and as a head of a program, a summer program at Aspen. I ran into her recently at Aspen and um, got to see fabulous Jimmy Lopez's bel canto, which the students were doing there. And I was singing Mahler. So we had like a fleeting hello but I did say, I'd love to pick your brain. And she's like, absolutely message me. So um, I have, I have, I, I love this nice list of people that I'd like to interview. The trouble is finding the time, lining up, you know, those, those dates. And now that I'm traveling so much, so yeah. I'm kind of back to my normal schedule, which is hectic. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an amazing thing that you've done. So I hope, you know, it, as it, as it complements your life and what your life looks like again now, I hope that it can continue in some form because it's so valuable to so many people. I appreciate it. Well, maybe I should take the cue from you and just make it a podcast. I've thought about that. Just switch gears and put it on another medium. Why not? Yeah, we could, uh, we could, we, we'll, do, let's, we'll do some joint interviews. You can take <laughs> one and I'll take one. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So in addition to all the job, the singing jobs coming back and stuff like that, you've also recently started as the co-director, right? Co-director yeah. of the Vocal Institute of Music Academy, which happens in Santa Barbara every summer, mm-hmm. formerly known as Music Academy of the West, right? Exactly. Okay. So tell us about that. Tell us about that program. Tell us if you're altering it, how you're altering it and what your vision is and what a summer at Music Academy with you looks like. Thank you. I'm so thrilled about it. It's been the greatest adventure. Um, For years now, I've kind of been, I've had this sort of hunger for something else. I didn't know exactly what it was. I knew that my schedule doesn't really afford the room for a teaching position at a university, but I went to a recital by my beloved friend, Susan Graham and Mel, um, Malcolm Martineau, and it was fabulous. And I just 
saw her bio was just paragraph after paragraph of all these fabulous places and something clicked in my head. I thought, I just, I want something else. Like I can see myself being on the path to just going to lots of wonderful places, singing music, but I want something else, like someplace where I can create a family, where I can create maybe not a legacy, but just that kind of impact. Mm -hmm. And then this just fell in my lap. I never saw it coming. I never, I never saw it coming. And the wonderful former CEO and president, Scott Reed said to me, we just did this brand reevaluation and the three words that are focus words now at Music Academy are nurturing, entrepreneurial, and courageous. And he's like, that's you. And I was like, it is? And um, he said, you know, first of all, we love the versatility you have, that you're in all the genres. We also love that you have a family. We feel that a lot of young musicians are seeking that, that they want that too. And it's not this and or. And we love your teaching. That was the the nail in the coffin, the seeing your masterclass, the seeing your, your lesson. So all of this just just was a just incredible affirmation. Because you know, I'm sure you feel this way. So rarely do people give you a character kind of assessment, say, right. Sam, you are this, 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 this. I mean, right. people might be feeling it, right? But we don't necessarily see you're so way. right. Right? Yeah. So I was just like, wow. I never saw this coming. And I got to tell Marilyn Horn myself because I was there for a couple of weeks in 2022 before the position was going to be announced and all of this with John Churchwell as the other co-director. And she was just like, well, that's perfect. <laughs> and that was also like, so, you know, moving, um, without sounding hyperbolic, like music Academy changed my life. I was there really young. It was my first big summer program. My dad jokes because he was helping me with my credit card still at that time. I was starting undergrad and he said, you stopped shopping. You just, after that summer, you just were practicing all the time. And you stopped shopping. <laughs> I was like, I think that's probably true. I mean, I had to practice a lot before Music Academy, but still, um, I got really serious. You know, I saw these 26 year olds, 27 year olds from Juilliard and Canada and Europe. And I'm like, oh, we have to work this hard. Uh -huh. our, our languages have to be this good. We have to, the song, the way that people, you know, I learned so much. So yeah, we're changing it. We're doing new things. Like one of the ideas I had is, you know, how are we different? Like what does Music Academy offer that no one else does? And I thought long and hard about that, especially having, a, you know, experienced a lot of these summer places that are wonderful. Wolf Trap, Aspen, Tanglewood, um, Central City, the Santa Fe Opera Program, like what are they, what are they offering? What are we offering? And I think in a lot of cases, they're singers, you know, to put it in a crass way, I suppose, are kind of cogs and wheels. They have to do all these things. And I thought, well, we're a small program. Why don't we do what they need? And so we kind of came up with this theme of curate to the individual where the out of 800 applicants, we take 20 singers and six pianists. So it's small. We do one fully staged opera. So part of the choosing of the the group are really those roles and covering those roles. But then what do they want to do? Do they want to do song? Do they want to focus on song or chamber music? Do they want to focus on contemporary music? Do they want to focus on technique? So we kind of go to each individual student and find a game plan for that summer. And then we also make sure that they're in those activities. So if someone really wants to do something with string quartet, we work with the instrumental program and make that happen. If someone really wants to premiere something, maybe we get in contact with the composer and make that happen. 
Um, we have this summer really interesting work. We have a project with Larry Brownlee, song project. We have a more kind of semi-stage project with Mary Birnbaum, who is a wonderful stage director. Ken Kazan and Daniela Candelari are doing the direction and conducting of Carmen, which in part will celebrate Marilyn Horn. That was one of my goals. Uh, originally, we we always are thinking about what are operas that offer great roles for young voices, but also we're thinking about what will get butts in seats. So last year we did Bohème, and it was great. We had a really wonderful turnout. Um, Mo Zhao directed, which was incredible. We were so lucky to have her and her team. So we're trying to offer really exact, like fabulous experiences. Maybe even more important than anything is our faculty. And then that sort of curated nurturing that I think we need right now. Um, and yet I still think about this question, which I mentioned before, about how rare it is to have a career. You know, we know 27,000 students on average graduate with a music degree every year. That is a ton of people. Yeah. Opera presenters are making their seasons smaller, not bigger. Places are shutting down, not opening. Um, orchestral openings on average are, I think, in, around 200 a year. I mean, we we are at we are at capacity. So, what do these young musicians need now more than ever? Well, I mean, if you're someone like me, where you get to be part of leading a program, the question is, what can we offer that will serve them, whether or not they become a performer? Right. So I think about that a lot. And I love that you brought up the Sasha sessions because I offered those in a way for the young artists last summer where I did a talk every week. I interviewed a different person, different focuses, mental health, but also practical things like taxes, parenting, DEI, and all the students that fell back, that fell back. The feedback was so strong about yeah. all this. Like we love those. And I was like, well, great. This is incentive to let's do it again. What did we not talk about? What do we need to talk about more, less? Mm -hmm. um, so I think people are craving, like you said, transparency, real talk. Mm -hmm. How is it to be a performer? And also, it's okay if you don't end up one. You right. know? Because right. we, we invest so much time, money, ourselves. There's this notion that you have failed if you don't end up at the Met on an annual basis it's like no right. if you're making an impact you're making an impact is that any less because it's in that city and not that city absolutely not and i, I, I that's one thing i've learned over the years like who cares about singing everywhere i just had lunch with janet baker which was one of the greatest joys of my life i thought i was gonna like arrive at her house and put flowers from afar and say you know and bow down yeah. and she said oh i can come meet you for lunch I'm like what <laughs> and we had this three-hour lunch, and it was incredible. But one of the takeaways was she didn't sing everywhere. Right. She actually wanted to be with her husband a lot, so she sang primarily, you know, in the UK. Right. When it came to opera. And I was like, here's Janet Baker, Dame Janet Baker, like one of my greatest idols. Did she go to every opera house in the world? No. Right. Is she any less an artist? Because her tombstone will not say a hundred houses versus ten or ten thousand followers versus five. Yeah. Like that's not the way we make a real impact. No. My my North Star is 
the audience members that come up to you after a performance and that feedback and the, the impact that literally your audience shares with you versus so much of the noise that we hear from administrators and inside the industry. And so much of what we do is posturing for our colleagues. And it's, you know, the audiences that we, that we perform for around the world, the vast majority of them do not know, follow, or care where, right. what else we're doing. It's, it's, it's what we do for and with them in that night. That's all, that's all you need. You know? I remember a man saying to me, you helped me face my mortality tonight. Right. I'm like, do I need more of that? No, that already has all the meaning in the world. Right. And you don't need some intendant to come, come up to you after you get off stage singing, that was the most amazing Octavian you've ever done. This is going to go places and blah, blah, all that. You know, that's different, right? Yeah, so true. So true. Yeah. So, okay. So Music Academy, it sounds amazing. I love the concept and the, the lane, again, the lane, you're, the unique lane you're carving out with that program um, to provide something complementary to everything else that also exists. Um, and, and I couldn't agree more with the direction and what you're describing in this, in this sort of shift in what the, the, the opportunities that exist or the kinds of opportunities that ex exist or the proportionality of opportunities that exist, especially in the traditional landscape. Mm -hmm. How do we set people up? Um, and how do we serve them? I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> I was thinking when you were describing, you know, if you have your people coming to music academy, they want to sing a chamber quartet, uh, a chamber piece with a string quartet, and they want to do all this. Like you, you're you're acting as like an agent for these for these fellows, and you're going and getting them these opportunities that fit and and work for them and serve them best. It's just true. I mean, why wouldn't we? You know, uh -huh. we're exciting because we can. You know, yep. that's one of the the joys of being small. It's also fully scholarship, you know, yeah. it's fully paid for. And I think a lot of programs now are costing these young students and yeah. we, I love that we don't. Right, right. I, it sounds incredible. And um, so I think obviously the application and stuff time period is passed for this coming summer, but you know, it, it every yeah. summer it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's, let's get back to, uh, let's get back to a little bit of Songland. I mean, I just am curious, do you have any like favorite, do you have any favorites, like full stop? Do you have favorite composers to sing eras, time periods, genres, languages? I mean, what do you love to do in recital? And, and also kind of to tack on that, I didn't send you this in advance, but tell us about the big commissioning project that you, that has been your life for the past couple of years. Yeah. Oh, how do I find you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting we're talking about students and the new landscape post-pandemic because the How Do I Find You project I did, which was essentially commissioning 17 new songs during the pandemic, which was just just like the Sasha Seshes were this like great gift in terms of inspiration for me and purpose. Um, so it was How Do I Find You, just to kind of create art again, you know, while being shuttered and not being able to get on stage. But it also was, well, goodness. I need to do this more. Just make the project myself. What is the project? What is it? So How Do I Find You was a, a project that struck me because I, you know, in the sort of depths of despair during the pandemic, um, I actually, I received a poem from Mark Campbell that was inspired by the murder of George Floyd. And it was called Listen. It's a beautiful poem, very simple, short. And actually, if you didn't know that it was about George Floyd, you maybe wouldn't have guessed because mm -hmm. it, it's subtle in its messaging, but the, the, the sense is in a word to listen, to listen. Um, and Mark and I said, well, why don't we just write a, ask a composer? And he brought up a couple names. I said, I'd love to ask Kamala Sankaram. Let's, let's give her a call. Mm -hmm. 
And I had a LA opera virtual recital that was coming up. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that was with my husband singing also. And we thought, why don't we both premiere two songs? So he did one and I did this listen and something just struck a, a light bulb again. And I thought, I need to do more of this. Mm-hmm. And I called a gentleman and friend, Larry Korash, who had approached me, I think a year before saying, I want to commission something for you. And so I said, Larry, why don't we do that commissioning project? But instead of one composer, why don't we ask multiple composers to do one song each? He was like, I love it. And he wanted to make it a 50th wedding anniversary present for his wife. So we planned this all in secret. And she they're both lovers of all new art, new music, Larry and Michelle Korash. Um, they're also behind the the Persons of Color Black Composers Project at San Francisco Conservatory oh, Music. Cool. So they're, they're doing a lot of amazing things. And they're commissioning new music by John Corleano, Mason Bates, Tobias Picker. So this was right in line. This was right up their alley. And so I'd call Larry and I'd say, what do you think about Missy Mazzoli? What do you think about Caroline Shaw? And he was like, go for it. Mm-hmm. So that's the way it got started. And with each composer, I told them, I don't know when I'll premiere this, but I want to record it first since I can record. I can't get on a stage, but I can get in a booth. Right. So that's how it came to be. Then it got Grammy nominated. Never saw that coming. So another like, you know, and this really can, and I, and I, I like talking about this because I think a lot of young people can relate to despair mm-hmm. and great things can come from those moments. It's hard to connect the dots, but I, I, that, that was my, that was my lesson. Don't wait for the phone to ring. Pick it up. What do you want to do? What do you want to create? What are you about? You know, it doesn't have to be new music. It can be so many other things. It should be other things. Um, so now I kind of want to do a, how do I find you number two? And I don't know what it'll be, but if it'll be that, but I, and I have this idea of like a, like a competition of sorts where every year I commission a new composer and I ask them to submit like a snippet of a song, but I have to figure out how to do that. Like, how do I create that, um, space, but I want to keep going. Um, what was your question though, Sam? It started out. Oh, I'm somewhere. sorry. I gave you two questions because I okay. thought I <laughs> thought about asking about that project and I didn't send you that in advance. What's I mean, that's all very amazing. And it sounds like you're 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 really doing amazing work in terms of working with living composers and commissioning in that way. What's what's some other stuff that you just love to put on recitals? Oh, Arab, yeah. Languages, composers, styles. I think my favorite composer is Fulf. Like I love nice. absolutely everything he ever did. And I mean, if you love song, of course you love Schubert and Schumann and Ravel and Debussy, and I love all those people. But Wolf is so unique in the song repertoire. I think there's no one like him, and each song is like a gem. And like Britain, it sounds only like him. Like it sounds only like him, yeah. right? Yeah. Not that Schubert sounds like anyone else, but I don't know. I just I love I love everything he did. I love Poulenc, especially when it comes to song because it's so wacky. You know, yeah. it could not be something else. Like I love these composers that uniquely understood the medium. It's like, how do we use this space to its greatest potential? Yeah. Well, let's go in all directions. Right. Let's be crazy. Um, I love Barbara too. I love, I love a lot of people. I, the way I plan a recital, first of all, it takes me forever because mm-hmm. I think about it forever and I have Perfect. such trouble deciding what's speaking to me right now? What's speaking to the world right now? What's speaking to this city that I'm going to? What's speaking to this series? 
you know, I'm coming to Cleveland Institute of Music in December for the Art Song Festival there. And I, 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 I must, it took me months, it took me months to narrow it down. But one way that I kind of simplify it is I think of it like a dinner, you know, like appetizer, main course, salad, you know, dessert. What What's the pace of it? So it's not all like main course, main course, main course, main course, main course, nor is it appetizer, appetizer, appetizer. Mm-hmm. But how do you have the, the balance of light and dark, of mm-hmm. fun and serious? Yeah. And also for me, I like to put some things I know, but some things I don't know. So I'm just like challenged enough, but not too much. Uh, the year before the pandemic, I was invited by two pianists to do recitals, Julius Drake at the Y and Malcolm Martineau and Wigmore, both Schumann focused, tons of stuff I had never done before, tons of rep I did not know. And that was hard just to kind of get all of that down, to be memorized, to be lived. I do think recital is the hardest thing we do because it just takes so much investment, so much vulnerability. Um, you just, you can't hide and nor should we, but you really have to plan and absorb and meditate. So I, I try to find that balance of, okay, that piece I know, or I did, you know, forever ago, so I can chill a bit. That way I can put this really challenging piece next to it. That's going to take a lot of my mental focus. Uh, th- thank you for saying all that about that because about recycling and, and the work that it takes because it's it's just true and I I was I just came back from a, a my another incredible week at um, the Oxford International Song Festival in England and wow. I saw uh, you know of the dozens of programs I saw one there was a full night of Goethe-Lieder Wolf by one singer and one pianist and when I tell you that this was like watching three operas in a row. Wow. I mean, first of all, the, the, it's like it's like concerto playing from the pianist, mm-hmm. this music, and the drama, mm-hmm. and the the um, the tasteful and amazing acting. But like, it was so active, mm-hmm. these songs. So, to to your point about Wolf, I mean, though it is no joke, that is some amazing stuff. Totally. Totally. All, all, all good settings. I'm mean, just amazing. Well, you can um, see what I meant about like opera serving song or in song serving opera mm-hmm. because you learn so much, like just like you described, like it felt almost like an opera because of the high stakes, because of the depth, like that exists in both realms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it, really the only difference with song is it's just in miniature form. Mm-hmm. But it, honestly, sometimes that's harder. It's it's yeah. one person who has to do it all, and you have less real estate and time to get it done to to yeah. have a whole arc. My my teacher from grad school, the words ring true, and now I tell my own students. I mean, fear, f- not fear, but uh, be wary of the one and two page Schubert songs more than okay. anything else, because you are responsible for fitting an entire evening's worth drama, yeah, into that amount of real estate. Well, and so much of the work is silent, you know, like two of my um, secret weapons are the director, Stephen Wadsworth, and my sister, who's who's also in drama, Sonia Cook. And sometimes it's about something entirely different than, you know, rain falling on the leaf. It's like, what, what is the verb here? What are you doing? And then that will bring up all kinds of personal, you know, store of oh yeah, that time that I broke up with 
blank. Right. So then I'm not singing about rain on the leaf. Right. I'm really singing about person X. Right. And boy, does that bring all of me. And doesn't, doesn't the composer want all of me? Right. Not just intellectual, I translated my text. Right. Well, and to that point, I don't think anybody can sort of uh, articulate this as it's happening, but something just clicks when that, when an artist is on that level. And can an artist relate in every single moment of anything they perform on that level? No, nor should they be expected to. But when that happens, mm -hmm. an audience can also feel it. And they might oh. not even know why. It's, an, it's inexplicable, but it's something deep and human. Well, I always tell singers, I'm like, it doesn't matter where you go. It just matters that you go. <laughs> you're thinking nothing. They're thinking nothing. Exactly. If you're thinking about your grandmother. They might be thinking about their wedding, mm -hmm. their, their health. This is what I love is that everyone has their own personal associations. So it right. doesn't really, we could be thinking about chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> but if it is deep, like happiness, yeah. then for someone else, it'll be another kind of happiness. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I should, I, I should also say at Oxford, um, Roddy Williams gave you a shout out and sang the Caroline Scott oh. song. I know. I love that he's singing that song. So many people are singing it. Oh yeah. 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 So he sang that for, for, for a, for a packed church full of probably 300 people. Wow. It was beautiful. Wow. It was beautiful. I love Roddy Williams. He's astounding. Astounding with the audience. What a guy, but I felt, I felt proud for you that that song has made it and Caroline that that song, you know, made it there. See, I think there are those of us like the Roddies who are just songsters, like that is their jam yeah. and not everybody has to have that as their jam and that's okay. But if you, if you can find a bit of yourself in the song world, I like highly encourage it. It's a really good challenge. Yeah, and this is a whole another episode for a podcast some other time. But it's uh, the the culture there for song is just so incredible, and from the audience too. They just they expect it, they love it, they eat it up, and um, it's an unbelievably inspirational place to go. And I, I've spoken to Sholto on the podcast earlier this year, and he knows what I think about it. And Oxford is just an incredible. And there's other festivals, all you know, Leeds. There's all these song festivals in England and Germany and stuff. It's just so, it's so vibrant over there. I love that. See, song is alive and well. Yes, exactly. hundred percent, hundred percent. No question about it. So, um, okay. For those who don't get the pleasure of, of learning and working with you closely at Music Academy, what is some of your go-to advice for the next up and coming generation of artists and, you know, words of affirmation and what, you know, what do you want people to know? Well, uh, I suppose one thing that comes to mind is just is gratitude. You know, when you are lacking work or lacking inspiration, um, gratitude for me is a real tool. You know, if I'm starting to have bad nerves before a show, um, whether it's I'm doubting myself or I'm unhappy about something, or let's say my health isn't great. And so I'm starting to get insecure. The minute I start to say, thank you Berlioz for writing this or Thank you for being in the audience or thank you for that perfect egg or thank you to the person who opened the door for me so I could go to the stage. Little messages like that, they change your energy, which changes the way you sound and the way you are. And I think just like we were talking about with the way our thoughts are read by the audience, gratitude is felt. Mm -hmm. So if you're in a space of thank you for being here instead of, oh, I don't know if I'm going to get the first thing right. We feel it. That's the thing. It's, it's like a, Blessing and a curse. We are the only instrument that 
faces the audience with our eyes, with ourselves, with our faces. We are with them. So we have to be honest and we have to curate our mind. We have to watch the atmosphere of our mind. The other thing is I'd say um, in terms of the gratitude piece, just from a pragmatic standpoint, let's say you have a period of no work. Why not write the mentors you worked with in the last year? The conductor you met at the festival from two years ago. I was thinking about you because I'm working on this Mozart. I loved our time together. You never know. They might give you a phone call and say, you know, I'd love for you to come perform on this series. I see this happen all the time. It's this kind of like we have to keep those branches alive. Yeah. But we it does take work. It takes work to keep the network intact. So from a, just a very simple standpoint, Stay in touch with the people who have touched your lives and keep the gratitude flowing. And then on the note of how do I find you, go make a project happen. Yeah. Call up a composer. Call up a violinist. You want to work on this? You want to learn a role in its entirety? Let Atlanta Opera know you just prepared that role and you'd love to cover it. Write the manager. When are you coming through my town again? I'd love to sing for you. Who's coming up on that symphonic series? Is there a conductor you could meet? Is there a show you could go to? Is there a contact you could make? I think we have to think in these ways of creating possibility. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I've learned through experience now that people are really happy and far more often I've received a yes, whether it's to chat or to work on a project, right? And so I think that first barrier is, you know, student-aged or young professional-aged musicians just fearing that they will be laughed out of if they reach out to someone of importance or of stature or of more experience than them. Yeah. And I, I can confirm that um, I felt that same way. Um, and you just start asking and you will be absolutely pleasantly surprised how many people are happy to participate and get creative and join up on a project or something. So true. It's so true. Yeah. Yeah. So. And also people are usually willing to be honest So if you're thinking of, you know, looking for feedback or trying to figure out how to move forward, reach out and people will respond and point you in the right direction. Yeah. Such good advice. Such good advice. I can't thank you enough for your time. And this was such a fabulous conversation. Um, Tell everybody again. So this podcast is dropping at the end of November. Tell everybody what you're up to at the beginning of December. You're coming to our state. That's right. I love your state. There are so many great orchestras and great festivals. I have a lot of wonderful memories of both Cincinnati and Cleveland, and I'm coming to do a recital both with Kirill Kuzmin and guitarist Jason Vio on December 10th. Cool. And that is Cleveland Art Song Festival, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. S-E-I-M. Mm-hmm. Great. So everybody, if you're anywhere within spitting distance of Cleveland, get yourself <laughs> C-I-M on December 10th. It should be an amazing program. So thank you, Sasha, again for thank the you, time. Thank you, It was lovely. So fun. What was your favorite part about this episode? Let me know when you rate, review, and subscribe this podcast. It's the best way to help the show reach other song lovers, and isn't that what it's all about? Catch new episodes of Song Cycle every fourth Thursday of the month, wherever you podcast. Song Cycle is a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative. You can learn more about its network of podcasts at cincinnatisonginitiative.org slash podcasts. That's all for now, songsters. We'll see you next time.